Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. You're going to need it. Um, really? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just calling out my son. Seriously, raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll bring one to you. And um, there's a there's a simple verse uh, I'd like you to find in Ephesians and, and maybe Daniel to put that one up. That'll be the first passage we're going to look at. Then we're going to spend the rest of the time in the Old Testament. Uh, before we get there, though, I, I saw this interesting article. It's an event uh, that takes place, and it actually took place back in January of 2014. Is uh, tens of thousands of people packed themselves into St. Peter's Square in the Vatican City to hear Pope Francis pray for peace in the Ukraine. It was an incredible thing. So many people there, but the ceremony included the releasing of two doves. Now, as Christians, we know this. Um, to Christians, doves are a symbol of peace and hope. And um, this pair of doves, as they were released, as they were praying for peace in the Ukraine, they released these two doves, and um, they were actually attacked by two other birds. Um, no sooner had they been set free in Peter Square uh, as a symbolic of gesture of peace to the Ukraine, they were attacked by a seagull and a crow, and they were taken down. Good news is, a few minutes later, they escaped. Feathers were flying everywhere. Yes, that happened, okay? Then I read another story that happened in Tampa Bay. A 65-year-old man decided, I'm going to do my own project. We call this what? Uh, DIY, do-it-yourself, right? So this situation where he's going to do it himself was, I'm going to take the paint off the outside of my house and repaint it. I'm not going to pay anybody else to do this. I'm going to save money. So a 65-year-old man went outside and he got a blowtorch and he thought he would just burn the paint off. <laughs> yes. Nothing else needs to be said there. Loss is estimated at $25,000. It would have been cheaper to hire somebody to scrape and repaint it, right? But if you think that's bad, another man from Seattle used a can of spray paint and a, and a lighter for a makeshift blowtorch because there was a spider in his laundry room and he tried to kill it. <laughs> After the fire trucks showed up and put out the fire in his apartment, $65,000 later, yes. Now, I read these stories, and I'm sitting there thinking, what were they thinking, you know? And it was sort of ridiculous and sort of crazy, but you know what? We don't have to read stories like that to understand that ridiculous and crazy happen every day around us, don't they? And for some of us, we're sitting there thinking, that didn't happen to me, but something close to it. And we, we walk away from that, and we, we sort of wonder, man, life is weird. But sometimes it's not weird. Sometimes life is just messy. Sometimes life is just unfair. Sometimes life is tough. So whether you, you sum up your last week or this past year as ridiculous, crazy, messy, unfair, tough, whatever it may be, it causes us to sometimes sit back and ask, God, what's going on? This is ridiculous, right? There's pain. There's sin, and sometimes that pain and that sin is almost too much to bear. And then we start crying out to God in a different way. And we, we say, is there, is there more to life than this? And maybe it isn't those other things. Maybe it's just we're tired of life of chasing after these dreams, trying to get rich, trying to be famous, trying to have power. 
And then we read and we hear headlines of, of drugs overdose and, and rumors of war and, and the situations going on around this world. And we, we wonder, why? Strained relationships, tight finances, lack of commitment. For some, you leave one funeral and you end up going to another funeral a week later. And it, again, how do we do this thing called life? Mike Fogel and I were talking the other night, and, and a simple phrase just came out of our mouths. How do you do life without Jesus? I, I just don't know. All the things that I've just shared with you, how can you do life without Jesus? And that's why I think it's so important for us as believers in Jesus Christ to share the good news and the truth of Jesus and how he helps us. Because it's at times and moments like that, we need somebody to rescue us. We need a Savior. Repeat after me. I need a Savior. Isn't that so true? We're all in need of a Savior. We're bound by sin. We're, we're shackled at times and chained to unhealthy and selfish choices. And we need somebody to rescue us. And so we surrender to our Savior. I confess with my sins. I confess my shortfalls to a holy and just God. And I ask Him to forgive me, and He does. And I ask Him to not only save me, to be my Savior, but I ask Him to be my Lord, to lead me in life, to help me be obedient to His commands. So I'm a Christian, right? Now what? You know, two weeks ago I preached and I shared the gospel and, and inviting people to surrender their lives to Christ. And then the last week, Pastor Landon talked about as a, as a body of Christ and that common love and that common bound and working and serving and living together in fellowship. And you say, so what does it mean to be a Christian now? Okay, so I'm, I've surrendered my life. I want to live in this community, but what's going to happen now? Rainbow's going to appear. I mean, what's going to happen? I discover gold. My zits disappear, and everyone's friendly, and I now, I now have friends because I'm a Christian, right? I now get better grades. I make the team. I'm going to make plays. I'm going to become homecoming king or queen, right? Maybe think we're going to win the lottery, get rich, have some kind of promotion. For some reason, I don't know if it's been preached this way or whether we just think it, but now that I'm a Christian, life is so much better. I'm going to say no to that. I'm going to say life doesn't change. I'm going to say you change. We change when Christ comes into our life. His Spirit enters our life. We're the ones that are going to be changing. Life around us is life. But we see life maybe differently. We live differently within this life. We can live more victoriously. We can live forgiven. We can live in a way that impacts others for eternity because of Christ living in us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Ephesians 1, 13, it says, And now you've also heard the truth, the good news... That God saves you. Isn't that good news? We're rescued. We're saved, just like I said. And when you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom He promised long ago. God's Holy Spirit has been given to us to live this life. Listen, we're still responsible for our choices in life. We're responsible for the people who we surround ourselves with. The time that we invest in our life, the time we invest in others, we're responsible for that. That's still my choice. And I hope and pray that my choice, whom I'm choosing to surround myself with, and the choices I make are reflective of how God's Spirit is working through me. 
Because if they're not, then I'm not living obediently to what God has called me to do. And I think about this, whether this is, this is your first day as a Christian or you've been a Christian for over 60 years, you're on a journey. We're all on a journey in our spiritual walk. But you don't have to journey alone. You don't have to journey alone. In your Bibles, turn to now the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. I love uh, reading through the Old Testament and New Testament. I know a lot of times people get stuck in one or the other. I love reading through both. There's so many incredible stories that God reveals to us. And as we read through God's Word and then we see how it lines up with the New Testament, it's an incredible connection. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, I want to read briefly about Elijah, then we move into Elisha. If you get them too mixed up like I always did as a kid, I just remember J becomes before S. Elijah, Elisha, that always helped me remember who came first. For some reason, I, I always got confused about that. But he was an incredible prophet of God, no doubt about it. But here's the thing, he was still human. He lived in a time in which there was so much contention with the people of God, with God, I should say. And they worshipped idols. They'd fallen away from worshipping God. It was this vicious cycle going through, we see in the Old Testament, where a repeated pattern of, here's a bad king, they followed a bad king, they made a mistake... They fell away from God. God judged them. They got right with God. They lived for God. And then it all went back again, that vicious cycle. And I'm reading through what's going on with Elijah. And in 1 Kings 18, we're at 19, don't worry, but I'm going to refer back to this just one second here. 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on this mountaintop and he has an incredible showdown with these false prophets. And in this incredible showdown, God gives him victory. Another message for another time. But he walked off of that victory. It was like winning a national championship. We can't even relate to what happens here. The only thing I can say is a national championship, a Super Bowl, a World Series, that big event, and you're just incredibly victorious. But the moment after it happened, he went away depressed and frustrated and alone and fearful. So he runs off to this distant land. So let's pick this up in chapter 19, verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he'd killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid. And he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone in the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. Let's pause for a second and see what's going on here. Incredible showdown, incredible victory. A man of God... One of the greatest prophets ever. And he's ready to quit. He's ready to give up. He ventures on life alone. Thinking, I don't need anybody. I'm just do this by myself. I'm frustrated. I'm tired. He left his servant. He went to a new city. Left his servant and went out into the wilderness by himself. Now listen. Solitude is good. Solitude is good. But it's not always healthy. You need to discern as when you need it and when you 
should be avoiding it. In this moment, although solitude might have been good for him after that moment, it was not healthy because he was the state of mind that he was in in this moment. And what I appreciate about God's word is it's genuine truth. God's word tells it like it is. He always shows the humanity in us. And here it is, as heroic and a great of man as Elijah was, the Bible clearly shows us that he was dealing with depression and discouragement and despair. He wanted to, he's like, God, go ahead and take my life now. I'm done. Are you kidding me? You're one of the greatest prophets ever. One of the incredible most victories we've ever seen is amazing. And, and, and yet this? What was Elijah so fearful of? Jezebel. She was an evil queen, no doubt about it. She was intimidating, right? But when you look at this, let me give you some, some we'll just do this, five quick points from this story, okay? If you're no taker, you can take them down, they're going to happen quick, okay? But here, here's the first thing I was looking at. Elijah wasn't thinking realistically or clearly. Elijah wasn't thinking realistically or clearly. Consider the source of threat. Was this threat from God, yes or no? No. It was coming from a queen. Now, for those of you who are card players, if you play the game of Euchre, okay, and you've got Trump, what's the highest card? The U- Trump, right? It's, it's what, the bower? Right? Is it more powerful than the queen? Yes. The king? Yes. The ace? Yes. It's the most powerful card in the hand. In this situation here, who's the most powerful? God, right? More powerful than any king or queen. And yet, Elijah is fearful. Who's more powerful today? God or the president? God is, right? Yet some of us are so fearful of a decision that might be made by a political leader. We're so fearful of of what what that politician might do. We're so fearful of what somebody in authority over us might do, a teacher, a coach, whoever. We're so fearful of these things, our employer. Who's more powerful? Somebody remind me. God? Yet sometimes we put man up there and we fear man instead of fearing God. The threat's coming from an unbelieving, carnal, godless woman. And he's fearful. Fearful what she can do. Here's the second note I, I, as I took note of this. He separated himself from a strengthening relationship. He left his servant, his companion, his friend at home. You just stay here. I'm going on my own. So many times as Christians, we tend to do that. In our biggest moments of need, we're like, I don't need anybody else. I'm all, I'm, do this by myself. No. That's when you need a Christian brother or sister to come alongside you and to help give you strength because you might not be thinking clearly. So you need somebody who is near you. Here's the third thing. He got caught up in the backwash of a great victory. It's he came down from that mountaintop experience, right? And if you've ever been to a camp, you've ever been to a conference, you've ever been to an incredible worship service, or you're just like, man, I just felt like I just met God. It was the most incredible thing. Ask any student, if you remember back in those days when you went to a camp or a winter retreat or a conference, and you're like, that was the best ever. And you come home, and what happens? It's not the same, is it? And all of a sudden, there's a big letdown. And you decide, boy, it must have been fake or not real. And you sort of go into the slump. Oh, it was real. 
God gave you a glimpse of, of heaven, so to say, or victory, so to say, and, and that was, yes, keep living for me. But he got caught up in that backwash of coming down off that mountaintop experience. Here's the fourth thing I noticed. He was physically exhausted and emotionally spent. Physically exhausted, emotionally spent, and has the worst time to make a decision. Let me share with you now. If you are physically exhausted, you're emotionally spent, don't be making any important decisions. Because that is when you will probably make a bad decision. Case and scenario here. He's tired. He does need a little R&R. And he needs to let God sort of pour into him and refresh himself. But in that moment of being worn out and threatened in fear and discouraged and despair, he allows fear to sort of creep in and start feeding him some stuff to make a bad decision. Here's the fifth thing I noticed. Elijah got lost in self-pity. He got lost in self-pity. Chuck Swindoll says this, It will lie to you, speaking of self-pity, it will lie to you, exaggerate, drive you to tears. It will cultivate a victim mentality in your head. That's what self-pity does. You start feeling bad for yourself. You start putting yourself to become the victim of the situation. Self-pity takes you to the point of tears where it's like, I can't do this anymore. Poor me. It'll tell you that you have it worse than everybody else and that you deserve so much better because what I'm going through is just so bad. I deserve so much better. That's self-pity talking away, chirping in your ear. But this is when God met Elijah. It was in this moment, all these things going on with Elijah, that God says, hey, you know what? My love, my mercy for you is greater than you ever know. You are desperate right now. Let me speak to you, please. So first God allowed Elijah to have a time of rest and refreshment. He fed him there, where he was at in this cave. No sermon. No rebuking. No shaming. Come on, Elijah. You just had this great victory for me. And you're acting like this? Come on. There's no shaming. Nothing like a lightning bolt to zap him in the backside. That didn't happen either. He could have, right? But God knows that fatigue leads to strange imaginations. So God communicated wisely with Elijah. And only the way God can. God told Elijah to, first of all, exit the dark cave. How many times have we done that? We go in a room, turn off the lights, shut the shades, sort of put ourselves in a dark situation. Not good. Get out of that dark moment. Open up the shades. Get outside. Get some fresh air. Go stand in the light. God says, I want you to stand in the light. Look at verse 11, chapter 19. Go out and stand before me on the mountain. Elijah, just get out of that cave, would you? Okay. Get out of where you've been resting. Stand in the light. Stand in the mountain and watch. The Lord said, and as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord wasn't in that wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, and the Lord was not in an earthquake. After the earthquake, there was this fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was sound of a gentle whisper. Verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God's voice was in the gentle breeze. It wasn't in the windstorm. It wasn't in the earthquake. It wasn't in the fire. His voice came in this gentle breeze. God drew Elijah out of the cave, out of the self-pity, out of the depression, and asked him twice, 
What are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing here? Did you forget that I'm with you? Did you forget the victory I gave you? Did you forget that I would never leave you? God showed Elijah that he still had a job for him. That he still had a place for him. Elijah, I'm not done with you yet. I know you're tired. I know your journey with me has been long. And I know you're discouraged and despair, but I'm not done with you. Don't think for one minute that you're finished here. Look at verse 15. The Lord told him, go back the way you came. Travel to the wilderness, wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be the king of Aram. Anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphath, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. And he went on to remind him, oh, by the way, you're not alone. There's 7,000 other prophets that worship me. You're not alone. I've got a job for you now. Go do those sayings. And remember, you're not by yourself. I don't think God has designed us as his children to live in caves like a hermit, wallowing in self-pity. I believe God has designed us to live in fellowship and friendship and in community with one another, as Pastor Landon touched on last week. So look at verse 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphath, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field. Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, First let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, then I'll go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I've done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen, slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople. They all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now, another awesome story here connected right after God said, I'm not done with you, okay? I'm not done. I've got a plan for you. I understand life has been rough for you, but I've got a plan for you. And this is important. Because without you, this next thing doesn't happen. See, a lot of times in our life, we're only looking at our lives. Well, what does God want me to do? We never realize that what we do for God will impact somebody else that will have another plan and purpose for God. It's like taking a stone and walking out into a puddle. You throw that stone and it creates a ripple. We think, I'm here to do this, make this impact for God. But we don't realize that our ripple going on here that we did for God is going to affect somebody over here. And when they're impacted for God by your obedience, another ripple takes place. And in this story, Elijah says, okay, God, I'm out of my cave. I'm, I'm, I'm moving on to do what you've asked me to do. I know, it's not, I know it's not easy, but I'm going to do what you asked me to do. I'm going on. And he doesn't realize the next incredible thing that's going to happen with Elisha. You think about who is this Elisha? Well, he studied, obviously, under Elijah. He actually has uh, recorded in the Bible more miracles than any, anybody else except for Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about, e- Elisha, in the next few weeks. Here's this ordinary guy. He's a farmer, ordinary, right? But he's also well off. This was a busy season for him. He was preparing the soil for planting. Just keep this in mind, okay? Twelve teams of oxen. That helps us understand that 
Elisha was part of a wealthy family, a big operation, 12 teams of oxen preparing that land. That's like seeing 12 tractors out in one field, big acreage, big job, right? He's doing what he's been doing for years. You know, and for the past couple of years, one of my points of emphasis when I get together with, with schools and, and athletes and coaches and talk to various groups, I think a lot of times, a lot of us are not in the danger of ruining our lives, but a much greater danger of wasting our lives. And, and I've shared that with, with different groups that I've worked with, and I think sometimes our, our greatest opponent, as I'm talking to a team, your greatest opponent is not the other team on the other side of the line with that other jersey color. Because we always pick out our enemy, our opponent, by the color of the jersey or whatever, who's across from us. That's not your greatest opponent. Your greatest opponent is not the person you're arguing with at home. Your spouse, your sibling, they're not your opponent. Our greatest opponent is the enemy, Satan, right? And I believe one of his tools that he uses is being average. He's saying, I'm good enough like this, right? And God says, oh, I've got more planned for you. I've got so much more in store for you. Why are you okay with being average when I've created you for greatness? I've given you purpose. Why are you okay with being average? It's a lie from Satan. Anything less than serving God is average. Here in this passage, Elisha, Elisha wasn't searching for a greater than a something during his calling. He wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be the best of this. He's just doing the same thing he'd been doing all along when he got called. Elisha was plowing his field. He was doing the same job he'd been doing for a long time. I don't know how fun it is to plow fields. It's been a while. I have to rewind back to when I grew up on a farm. And all I remember was this. I was in a tractor. Go up and down. Up and down. Up and down. Up and down. Lunchtime. Up and down. Up. You know what I'm saying? Some of you farm understand this. It's, the monotony is incredible, right? Up and down one direction. And here's the thing. Elisha's walking behind a team of oxen. Okay? He's seeing the rear end of the oxen as he's plowing all day long. It's not the greatest sight. It's not the smelliest sight either, but it's not a pleasant view, but it's just the monotony of doing the same thing over and over and over. And I don't know about you, but there's days it's like, I feel like I just did this yesterday. Or maybe you feel like you've gone through the monotony of things, not at work, but at home. It's like, this is the same argument. Or this is the same situation. Or in our family, it's another injury. Oh, here we go again. The monotony of it, right? And we wonder, there's got to be more, right? In the middle of Elisha's monotonous daily job, God shows up. In this case, Elijah, the man of God, arrives on the scene and places his cloak over the shoulders of Elisha. And that cloak was very symbolic. I mean, obviously the cloak was an important part of clothing used for protection. They would use it to sit on. They would even take it and put luggage in it and use it to carry luggage. But in this, the, sim uh, the symbolic act of what he did was basically saying, I'm calling upon you to be the next prophet, to take my place for God. It was a God calling that was being passed on. It was an incredible moment. That which I was under, Elijah says, you are now under. 
I will be your teacher. God will work through you as he worked through me. And I don't know if you've ever had this sense before that maybe God's calling you out of the monotony of life to do more, to be more. Maybe God's asking you, say, you know what? I, I get what you're doing every day today. I've got something else I want you to do in the midst of that. I want you to do something else that I've planned for you. It doesn't always mean maybe doing something different than what you're doing, but maybe doing something with more purpose where you're at right now. Living where you are with a greater passion for what you're doing. Maybe that's what he's calling. But in this moment, I, again, I wrote down, if you're a note taker, I'd, I'd put this down. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Let me say that again. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Because a lot of us think, well, I don't really understand what God's wanting me to do, so I'm not going to act on it yet. You don't have to understand it fully to act on it right now, immediately. Act on it. Watch what Elijah does. Look at verse 20. Or Elisha. Elisha left the oxen standing there. He runs after Elijah and he says to him, Hey, let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. And Elijah replies, Hey, go on back, but think about what I've just done. So in case you miss this, he left the oxen in the middle of the field, and he runs after Elijah. Okay? In the middle of the job. He didn't say, he didn't say this to Elijah. Hey, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. He said, I, I, let me write down the pros and cons as to maybe why I should or should not go with you. Let me think about the good and the, the, possibly the bad things in making this de- decision, Elijah. Didn't do that either. He didn't consult with his Christian buddies or his pastor. Bottom line is, another well-known man of God that was very highly respected, knew as a man of God, came to him and said, this is what God wants you to do. And Elisha's like, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's time for me to stop planting crops and start planting God's word. And Elisha left it all and ran after this opportunity. And then here's the thing. If you've been sitting in church for years, maybe you've been part of a small group Bible study, and you know, you're know you growing on this spiritual journey, you're reading God's Word more, you're sharing your faith with more people, you're worshiping more, and you're learning, you're praying, all this, okay? You're working on your faith. You are doing this on this journey right now. So here's the thing. So when God says to you, here and now, guess what? You're ready. So many times we're like, oh, well, I need to pray about this. Have you not been praying about this? Hey, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What should I be doing to serve you? And somebody comes along and says, hey, I think you'd be great at this, serving at our church or in this ministry or at this school, whatever it may be. And you're like, well, let me pray about it. Have you not been praying about it? If you've been praying about it and those kind of things happen, it sounds to me like God's answering your prayer. And in this moment, God's coming to Elisha and saying, it's time. You know, she's like, I'm ready. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. God says, commit, you commit. God says, go, you go. If he says, stop, you stop. If he says, shape up, shape up. 2003, God said, Rex, you're done with your job at the church. So in 2003, like, okay. I did not know what I was doing next. For the next three, four months, I sort of scratched my head and said, oh, well, whatever he wants me to do, I'll do. But I know I'm not supposed to be here anymore. I didn't fully understand what was next. And I prayed about it. I went to a leadership conference in Chicago with a bunch of other student leaders and adult leaders. And while we were sitting there around a, a table of strangers at launchers, 
myself and one of my friends that had gone and another guy and, and all these other guys I had no clue. And we're sitting there talking. And after about 20 minutes, the guy across the table says, hey, you know, you remind me a lot of a guy I know. And I was like, really? Is that good or bad? He goes, oh, it's good. He works with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Really? You're in Kansas City, which is where the national headquarters is. Really? Little did he know, my friend knew, that I had been praying about coming on staff with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And it was like this guy was taking a cloak and throwing it over me and saying, wow, you remind me of a person that, that does this, and maybe you ought to do it too. It's like, whew, okay. Now, of course, for me, I didn't fully understand at that time. I got a hint of, oh, I wonder if this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I was like, kept tossing out the fleece. God, if you really want me to do this. It's like I said, how many times do I have to tell you this is the direction you're going? Elisha, what he does, though, is crazier. I didn't do this. He did this. Look at verse 21. So Elisha returned to his ox and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople. They all ate. He went with Elijah as his assistant. Here's the second point. God uses the most... God, God uses those most who are holding on to the least. Sounds sort of crazy, right? Those who God uses the most are usually the ones who are holding on to the least. You know why? Because when your hands are full, it, it's hard for God to fill them. When you got so much other stuff going on, you're so busy with everything, and our schedules, you, you can't be used by God because you're holding on to too much other stuff. And Elisha's like, you know what? I'm going to burn my plows and I'm going to kill the cow. And actually, a few years ago, I preached on this. He took those 12 oxen, which is equivalent to all those tractors, right? Your source of income, your investment, and he slaughtered them. And he burned the plow. You want to talk about commitment? He ain't going back to that job anymore, right? You can't go back to that job. You just destroyed it all. That was his livelihood, his way of living. Those were his resources. You talk about letting go of the past and grabbing a hold on to what God's got you right now. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn the plow and I'm going to kill the cow. What do you want me to do, God? How many of us have ever done that with our life? God, you want me to go this direction? I'm all in. I am so all in. And you think, man, this guy must be crazy. No, he was obedient. And it's funny today, whenever somebody makes a decision to do something for God, we say, man, they're crazy on fire for God. No, they're just being obedient. When Jesus was in the boat with Peter and his fishing buddies, remember what happened there? First he told Peter to fish in the middle of the day. And as a fisherman, you don't fish in the middle of the day, right? And he told Peter to cast the net over in the other direction. You don't don't go that way either, Jesus. But we'll do it for you, right? You remember what happened? The net was so full of fish, they couldn't even pull it into the boat. Their boats were about ready to sink. There's so much fish. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't lift those nets out of the water. And Jesus just showed them, you know what? The richest gain that they would ever experience on any fishing job ever. This was, this was the best day ever for these fishermen in their job, right? The greatest sales pitch, you know, you've ever made or the greatest accomplishment at your workplace and then what does Jesus say? Hey, I'll tell you what. This is awesome, isn't it? Why don't you just leave it all behind and come follow me? I'll make you fishers of men. Not one of those disciples like, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. Look at all this. What did they do? Like, okay. And they went and followed him. Because they realized who they were following. It's the God of this universe. They left immediately. When Elisha accepted God's invitation to a greater life. He left nothing for himself to go back to. 
When I mean greater life, it wasn't going to be like riches and rainbows, like I said earlier. The life of obedience is greater. When I was a kid, I remember the first time I did something that I would consider radical for God, uh, and that was I took cassette tapes. <laughs> Anybody in here remember cassette tapes? The kids are like, whoa, <laughs> cassette tape? Hey, just check the garage sale. In a couple weeks, you might find a couple. But anyway... Um, I remember all these, I, I would sign up with Columbia House. Remember Columbia House, some of those? Twelve cassette tapes for a penny, right? So I would do that, and then I would get buy my next three, and then unsubscribe, and then I'd wait till the next paper came out, and hey, another twelve for a penny. And I had all these cassette tapes and, and all kinds of music. And remember my background, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I'm going to tell you that probably 90% of those cassette tapes that I had was not Baptist music, okay? And so... Those cassette tapes, I'll never remember. I was probably at a camp, or maybe it was a Sunday night service. I felt very convicted. It was like God was saying, you need to get rid of that. And so I remember going home. I took all my cassette tapes, went to the burn barrel out back behind the barn, threw all my cassette tapes in the burn barrel, and I burned all that music. Okay? Of course, a couple years later, I went back and started buying other music and continued to listen to what I listened to. And then in 1992, I experienced a moment at a conference when the speaker was up front talking about music and what we listen to and how it affects our lives and the lyrics and, oh, I just listened to the beat, but truth is we all know the lyrics. And the music industry, what they do with their money, that when we, whenever we buy a song, where that money goes to the lifestyle of the singer and I'm supporting their drug habit and I'm supporting whatever it may be, it was hit me then. It's like, I need to stop listening to the music that I was listening to. So I, once again... Killed the cow, burned the plow. <laughs> Got rid of my music. I said, all right, God, I'm coming back to Wauseon, 1992, and I hope there's a radio station because there's nothing to listen to except WPOS. Okay, and some of you remember 1992 WPOS. Like I said, there's really nothing to listen to in my opinion. So that's just my opinion. Came back that next day, and Yes FM just comes on the air. And it was like God was saying, see? I have something better for you to listen to. Um, you didn't think there'd be anything to listen to? And then all of a sudden, there's a Christian radio station in our area. Something to listen to. Obviously, since then, there's so much more music available to listen to. But that was my commitment. I feel like God was telling me to do that. And so that seemed radical to me. I didn't fully understand. I just knew I had to obey. I'm glad I did. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with the music itself. But it just symbolized a lifestyle that I didn't feel was pleasing to God. It was my conviction that God, uh, His Spirit, placed on me. James chapter 4, this isn't, I don't think in the, I don't think I had this one for Dan. I want to close with this, this scripture. We were in our Bible study yesterday morning with the men here, and, and this, and I, I told Dan as we were walking, I said, you know, it's sort of funny when I'm preaching on something and we sit in a Bible study, it's like that verse just goes right with what I was saying. And in James chapter 4, um, four chap- chapter 4, verse 4 says, You adulterers. I mean, this is those lovey-dovey. We're talking about lovey-dovey. How James is really brother and good, good tone. Then it all changes in chapter 4. He goes, Don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. That if your aim is to enjoy the world, you can't be a friend of God. What do you think the Scripture means when they say that the Holy Spirit, whom God's place within us jealously longs for us to be faithful. God's Spirit is within us saying, be faithful to me. Be faithful to me. You confess 
your sins to God. You've given your life to Him. I've come into your life. Now be faithful to me. And quit being friends with the world. I don't know. There's a lot of plows in our lives that we need to burn. And some oxen we need to slaughter. Different dependencies we have, ways of thinking, bitterness, resentment, excuses. I'm not sure what we're holding on to in our insecurities, but it's time to burn the plow and kill the cow, right? It's, it's time to say, I do not want to be an enemy of God. Remember, God makes all things new, and if you're new in Christ, then why are you still acting the same? Giving the same, talking the same, witnessing the same, living the same. We're new in Christ. I want to encourage you this morning. I've just been praying about the sermon and, and the next few sermons. As a child of God, I think it's time to make sure in the midst of everything that goes on about us, again, to refocus on God. I know there's been a lot going on in this world right now, and it seems like it's out of control at times, and I feel like we're in a dark cave at times. It's like God's just whispering to you right now, come out of the cave, get your focus back on me. And respond to God's calling. What is he asking you to do? What is he asking you to leave today and come to? Worship team, would you please come forward? That's between you and God. I shared a couple of things that God hit me in my life at certain stages. Those were years ago, different things. Today it's something else. But here's the thing. I don't have to fully understand why God's asking me to leave those things and to follow him. I just need to be obedient. And I hope you are too. I hope you are too. Would you please stand? We'll pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. Lord, I thank you for what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, to give us new life. And you've placed your spirit within us. But sometimes, Lord, we are at, it seems like we're uh, being unfaithful to your spirit and trying to be friends with this world and do things. And God, you've, you've asked us You've called us out of that. And some of us are maybe doing things right now, living in a lifestyle that's like, it's not healthy. It's, it's like being in that dark cave and discouragement and despair, and God's calling you out. And he, he wants to whisper to you, and, and Lord, I pray it doesn't take an earthquake or a fire or a windstorm to wake us up. I'll take that whisper in my ear if that's what it needs. But God, if you need to do more than that, then do more than that to wake us up, to realize we need to get out of where we're at. And God, if you're asking us to do more, to live for you in a way that we didn't think we could, or maybe you're asking us to be obedient, do something, then God, throw that cloak around us right now and give us a spirit of obedience and say, yep, I'll go, I'll go. First, let me go dump all this other junk in my life. Let me get rid of that. God, I might need help getting rid of that. We can confess that to him and ask for his help. It's got to work in our lives. What is it we need to get rid of? How do we need to start following you more? What does a day of obedience look like? Help us to walk that way to the rest of today. And tomorrow when we wake up, give us the strength to walk in obedience tomorrow too. God, we love you. Love this church, Lord. I'm thank, so thankful for this church body. That we can come and worship you. Lord, we just pray now as we sing to you that you just continue to put your spirit within us, a spirit of joy, truth, and hope, and peace. In that name we pray. Amen.